This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Priyanka Champaneri, author of the novel The City of Good Death. I avoided the term karma on purpose because I feel like it's really been overused and overwrought in Western culture. We'll be back with Priyanka Champaneri in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents the continuation of close to eight years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions and craft, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and a monthly newsletter. In addition, there are surprise thank you gifts that I offer when you enroll as a patron and spontaneous mailings like a bookmark all my patrons received this January embedded with flower seeds. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. I assure you, even $6 a month makes a huge difference to me in the production of this show. So why not make today the day to show your support? Why wait? Beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned. At the end of the show, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for being here with me today, right now, in this moment. And on to the show. My guest today is Priyanka Champaneri, author of the novel The City of Good Death. Champaneri received her MFA in creative writing from George Mason University, and her novel earned her the 2018 Restless Books Prize for New Immigrant Writing. The City of Good Death takes place in India's holy city of Varanasi, which is also known as Banaras and Kashi. On the banks of the Ganges River, Varanasi holds the ultimate promise for Hindus who die a good death there, which is to be released from the cycle of reincarnation. Champanary's novel focuses on a young man, Pramesh, who is the manager of what is known as a death hostel, where people come from across the country to die. He is living there contentedly with his wife, Shoba, and young daughter when his past comes back to literally haunt him. His cousin, who he grew up with like a brother, appears at his hostel but is later found dead. It turns out he died a not-good death, and his spirit is visibly inhabiting the death hostel, scaring the clients and casting a bad reputation on Pramesh's business and family. The dead cousin's reemergence forces Pramesh to examine his past and his present with an introspection and awareness that he previously did not employ. We began the discussion with Priyanka Champaneri, sharing where the story started for her, which was before the emergence of the characters of Pramesh and his cousin, Sagar. I think I really started out with that setting. You know, setting was really, really pivotal to kind of precipitating the entire genesis of this book. I had a friend who had sent me a Reuters article, um, I think a year after I was out of college. Title of the article was Check In and Die in Two Weeks or Get Out. And it turned out to be about the death hostels in Benares. And I'd grown up in a Hindu household, so I you know, knew that Benares had an importance within that school of philosophical thought, but I had never really given more consideration to it or bothered to unpack it. But then reading that article and reading about the death hostels and the fact that 
these very, very, in a way, logical places existed. These places where a pilgrim who really had that wish to be able to die in the city, they could go and have shelter while they completed this. And the fact that making a trip like that, it's very intentional to be in your village one day and then suddenly wake up and your family's like, oh, it's time, like it's time to go. And knowing that that person is traveling to this city and they are never, ever coming back, not even just on the level of not coming back for this particular life, like that life is going to end, but just the idea that they're really never coming back. They're going there with the intent of ending that cycle of reincarnation completely. A lot of that spoke to me um, on a few different levels. I think one is, you know, I mentioned growing up in a Hindu household, so I was really steeped in this culture and in this way of thinking and in this school of philosophy in terms of like guidelines for how you might try and live your life or how you might try to ease the unbearableness of existence at times. But at the same time, I also grew up, I was born in Virginia, you know, raised in America. So very much surrounded with this predominantly Judeo-Christian culture where death is, I think, perhaps viewed or seen or treated a little differently. And certainly the mourning rituals are different. The grieving process is different. Um, coming to terms with it, I think, takes a different path. And not to say that either one is right or wrong, but they are very, very different. And so I could see this city and the setting of the hostels from those, both of those points of view. You know, the Hindu part of myself saw it as something very logical and practical. And of course it makes sense. Like it's a, it's a, it's a necessity almost. But then the part of me that was born here and familiar with another side of the world could also see the novelty in it or the strangeness in it. So just the setting itself was really attractive to me. And Benares, too, the more I started reading about it, um, I have to give the big caveat of the fact that I haven't actually visited Benares physically. I've been a, a traveler, a tourist to India several times in my life, but I've not yet made it to Benares. So I had a lot of misgivings even starting to write a story based in that city. I didn't feel like I was the right person to tell it for a lot of different reasons. But I started to do just a lot of reading and a lot of research on the city because I was just really curious. I wanted to know more about these places and I just wanted to know more about the city. And I think a lot of people who have physically been there tell a similar story of falling in love with it because of how multifaceted it is, because of a lot of different reasons. You know, you see like those common pictures of people on the ghats of the funeral pyres constantly burning. The contradiction that exists in the city, like these two things that are opposing elements that exist side by side, was also a really, really strong pull for me. So, for example, funeral pyres constantly burning on the ghats. It's the city of death. And when you think of a title like that, that probably brings to mind like a really gloomy, bleak sort of setting. But the city itself is just exploding with life on so many different levels. And I loved that dichotomy, um, the two different things. So I think I went into writing the book not only wanting to write a bit of a love letter to this city, which I have yet to visit, which I know sounds a little strange, but also just wanting to show this coexistence of opposing elements that I had seen on the different trips that I had made to India and that I had seen work really well, kind of inexplicably. Um, I just felt really, really attracted to that. So other examples of opposites are, you know, Benares has its own red light district, like a lot of major cities, fortunately or unfortunately, however you'd like to look at it. So it's got this kind of element of seediness, um, but then it's also the holiest city, the Hindus. It's 
a city that has a tremendous spiritual pull. So just these, these various aspects of place really drew me to it. And I think that was the initial reason for the attraction. But once I started getting beyond um, kind of creating the visual and building the city in my head, you know, your story has to go somewhere. It can't just all be about place. And these characters that ended up populating my head were what drove it to begin with. And I think the initial question that really motivated me, I think most writers kind of mention that they have questions or a single question in their head that they want their work to try to answer. And I don't know if those questions I was trying to answer stayed the same from when I started and when I ended. Um, I remember I wrote in my notebook when I started writing, the central question was, who do you ask for forgiveness when all of the people who could have given that to you are gone? They no longer exist in the world. Um, that was like a starting impetus, which is interesting in itself because, you know, forgiveness, from my understanding, is pretty central to more of a Christian way of thought. It doesn't really have too much of a place or it, there's not too much time dedicated to it in what I have read in terms of Hindu philosophy, but it was something I was really interested in um, and, and wanted to explore with these characters. I don't know if the question ended up being something I was intensely focused on by the time I finally finished writing the book. Um, when I think about the book now, and what's really interesting to me, and perhaps what's interesting moving forward, it's how do you take a 5,000-year-old system of thought, and how do you take pieces of it and apply it to life in a contemporary society? How do you take something that has lasted so long and still find a way to use it in your, in your daily life? You were mentioning that you then you do have to populate it with characters. So let's talk a little bit about Pramesh. You were mentioning you have to have a story, you have to have people. So let's talk a little bit about him and what he's facing existentially and daily and, and the creation of him. So the creation of him in many ways is inextricable from the creation of Sagar. The book opens with this dead body that's hanging from a boat that two boatmen find in the river. And I had opened it with that scene and, you know, just like Chekhov's gun, you've got a dead body, you have to do something with it later on. And Pramesh had always also been there in my mind, but I didn't know in those early stages, I write very organically, so I didn't know what the story was going to be. It was very much a chain reaction of, we have a dead body. Who is that person? How are they connected to somebody in that city? Okay, you have this character of the hostile manager is going to be connected to that manager. How does that work? What is that relationship like? What is their background? It really was very much a step by step by step into the dark the entire time not really knowing where I was going and just following these characters until I got to the end. And I don't think I really understood completely the character of Pramesh until I finally finished my first draft. He was difficult in a lot of ways because he's such an interior character. He carries his grief within himself and is so repressed inside with it that he hides it even within himself. So a lot of that unpacking, a lot of that digging up had to happen within the first draft. And I think it wasn't until later drafts that I was able to take what I had discovered in that first draft and really propel it onward. But building him was very, very much this just blind following of this is the setup that I have who is this person? What does he do in this situation? Okay, so this happens. Now, how does he react to that? 
it's a bit of a nerve wracking way to write, but I didn't know how to write it any other way. I would say one of the things that I notice with him and, and many of the characters is it's like you have this this throbbing, really interesting city that is unique and filled with, you know, millions of people who are all on their own journey. But there's also something very prescriptive about the characters and how they behave in the world that there are certain prayers you say when someone dies. There's a certain way of doing ritual that will assure them a good a good death or assure that they won't hopefully be a ghost in your house. And then at the same time, Life is messier than that. So I kind of saw some of the conflict as coming up either when the prescription for how to behave goes wrong or when it's kind of not enough. Is that accurate? And what would you say about that? I think that's pretty accurate. Everybody has their own personal feeling about ritual, about superstition, about these things that you're supposed to do or not supposed to do. I'm a big believer in ritual providing comfort. But then, you know, my mom is very, very traditional and for her ritual kind of means something more. It, doing the ritual is actually, it's actually helping you create something or produce something or make something happen in a way. I think with these characters, especially around death and you know, this this applies no matter the religion or where you are in the world. You know, grief is a paralyzing thing. You can certainly see that with Pramesh. So you have to goad yourself into action. And so having these prescriptive steps that you do can provide tremendous comfort. It's something that you can do. Um, if you're if you're told by a priest that doing these steps is going to ensure that your loved one finally completes the journey in the way that they wanted to. It's something that you can do at a time where you really can't do very much else. I think what's what was interesting throughout the book, although I noticed you didn't use the word often, was the idea and concept of karma that you know how how he maybe did a death ritual for someone was linked to his own experience later and that things that happened in his youth did have consequences later i avoided the term karma on purpose because i feel like it's really been overused and overwrought in western culture and I think perhaps misinterpreted a little bit on some level. Um, I think for a lot of people, if they were to define it, they would say something along the lines of what goes around comes around. You know, if you, whatever, your, whatever action you perform is going to create some sort of effect, which could be good or it could be bad. But remember, you know, in this book, there's a really big emphasis on detachment, on not assigning any good or bad to whatever action you do because you should simply be performing the action because it's your duty, not because you want to get anything out of it, um, you don't want to get revenge out of it, or you don't want to get a reward out of it. It should be almost something mechanical, mechanical that you are doing. So that might be one reason that I avoided it. I did feel, though, that, that the idea of karma was deeply embedded in how Pramesh lived his life. Like, even if that word wasn't used, it's, it's kind of like the consequences of actions taken or not taken and rituals may be done or not done. One of the things that he grapples with is when he leaves his village in the beginning to, to, and leaves his cousin, his cousin says, don't look back at me. And he didn't. And he really suffered in some ways for not doing that. And that happened again in the death ritual. There, there was, he was thinking a lot about looking back. That is so, so interesting. And now I think I understand what you're getting at. 
I wasn't consciously using that principle of karma when I was writing those scenes. But I think as a writer, I'm really, really attracted to the idea of symmetry. So some of that was definitely purposeful, but not with with the idea of karma so much as this idea of he did it right the first time when he leaves his cousin and Sagar is like, okay, you're going, you're going off to start a new life. Don't look back. He does it. He doesn't look back. He obeys. Um, and he really does, even though he still has a part of himself is thinking about his cousin and the life that's left behind. He's also thinking forward and he can't do that during the funeral as much as he'd like to, he's both prevented by himself, prevented by whatever metaphysical thing that happens that that forces him to look around to the other side. But what's also interesting to me is that I remember in specifically writing those scenes of not looking back, I wasn't thinking of of karma or of Hindu philosophy. I was thinking of fairy tales because in so many fairy tales, and especially in European ones, there is this idea of the hero or the heroine going on a journey, meeting some magical being and being given some sort of charm or whatever, and being told, okay, you're good, you're safe, as long as you don't look back, don't look back. And inevitably, that character always does, no matter what. And then that's when everything goes to crap, right? Like they they just couldn't summon the self-will to not look back. And then I think that's also that's also in the Bible, I believe, with the book of Job where his they're they're fleeing the city and his wife looks back and turns into a pillar of salt. So that was definitely in my mind for whatever reason. Um I'm a big fan of fairy tales. I still read fairy tales now whenever I feel like I'm just feeling dry or all the ideas or enthusiasm have dried up. But it was definitely something on my mind when I was writing those scenes. Well, one of the things that is interspersed throughout the book is you're telling the story, but then you have these pages where you're writing in italics and it seems a little bit more fairy tale-ish. It's, it's, it's like um, maybe a legend or a story that's been passed down about a certain death and of a certain woman that happened at the Gots. And I'm wondering if you could talk about the inclusion of this and how you wanted it to interplay with the story. That story, which I call the Green Parrot Girl thread in my head, because that's what the people in the city have named this character. And it's this story that just constantly cycles its way through the city. It's a very old story. Nobody's even really sure anymore where it came from, who told it, who the people are or anything. There's all these versions that float around. And I was really attracted to the idea, but I didn't figure this out, I think, until I was maybe halfway through writing a first draft, but I wanted a central thread. Um, I had been playing a lot with, with gossip, with side stories, with all of these different tales that kind of float in and out of the city. Some are really short-lived, and I wanted to have one that was really long-lived, one that just got told and told and told until it just generated a life out of its own. I don't know exactly why I was so attracted to it, but writing those green parrot girl scenes were probably the easiest pieces of writing out of the entire book. Um, I loved the mythic quality of it. I think it was also really freeing to be able to write that way, to not have to really always adhere to a logic in a story because when you have a tale that's been recycled over the years and decades in and out of people's mouths and you have no real source of truth, you really can do anything that you want to do with it. And that was really exciting to me. And definitely I loved echoing that kind of fairy tale quality about it. I think I also saw an opportunity to write a fairy tale within literary fiction, which 
if I can figure out a way to do that, I'm I'm always going to do that. Also, storytelling is a big part of this novel. It's the storytelling might be legends of people who have had good deaths before. It might be when things don't go right of of the ghost that's inhabiting there. It might be that hey, people are aren't actually dying here. They're coming back to life and it's it like it's it's watching how that evolves maybe from from a truth or a misunderstanding into gossip into into a legend. And I found that that notion of storytelling was very important, not only embedded in your story itself, but how you told it. I just love that quality, even in real life. I just love sitting somewhere when we used to be able to go places before the pandemic, you know, sitting in a restaurant and not eavesdropping, but stuff just happens to come your way. And you just hear that scintillating piece about somebody you don't know, and you're never going to meet that person. But it's just this hint of a story that just sends like your your hair just upstanding because it's it's just so juicy. And I remember from my the times that I had been able to travel to India, um, I mentioned that my parents are, are Gujarati. I don't speak Gujarati, but I can understand it pretty well. But because I can't speak it, I'm often rendered mute whenever I'm in these situations, I don't want to say the wrong thing or, or use the wrong gender tense or, or whatever and, and inadvertently offend anybody. But because I can't say anything, it means I'm really concentrating on what I'm listening to. And whether you're in a store or at a tea stall or in a market or, you know, just waiting for a sandwich on the side of the road, there's such good gossip. There's so many stories. You don't even have to hear the whole story. It's just pieces of it. I really see that kind of communication as just so incredibly suffused with life, with character in itself. And I wanted to bring that quality within this book because a lot of the books that I love have these many, many kind of diverting side stories that might not really contribute to the central plot, but they're so fun to read. So I'm thinking of books like Midnight's Children um, by Salman Rushdie and A Tree Grows in Brooklyn by Betty Smith and A House for Mr. Biswas by V.S. Nepal. I just love, love, love books like that because I feel like they really just create this rich texture of life outside of these characters. It's not just these characters who are moving and creating action and things are happening to them, but there's just this multifaceted universe around them of life just constantly evolving and changing and stories being told around them that the reader gets to participate in as well. It's a lot of fun to write too. I think too that what grows out of some of that gossip and storytelling in in this society, even though you're in this big city of, of Benares, you have the, this community of people that you write about, the neighbors, the people that are friends with the um, Pramesh and his wife and daughter, the people, the policeman. So you're, you, you've populated it with a smaller community, you know, shamans and, and, and people who are overseeing the ceremonies. And I found that also within that community was so much intense judgment. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, there is a lot of judgment. I think that's human nature. And I think that's a universal quality, no matter where you go in the world. It's always, it's an easy way out of your own life and your own reality to look at a situation that somebody else is going through, especially if you don't know that person, if it's just a story that you've heard secondhand, it's so, so easy to just look at that in a flat two-dimensional way and say, oh, well, that would never happen to me, or I would never do it that way, or, you know, gosh, that was really stupid. Why did they allow that to happen? I think that's intensely human and intensely universal, and it's actually a lot of work to not do that and to instead bring empathy to the table. Um, That was another thing that I was really, really interested in is 
how does empathy play here? How does judgment play here? It also controls kind of the metamorphosis of a story as it's told and as it's kind of floated around a city. It's, it's one thing to start out with a really, really benign observation. And then all of a sudden, months later, it's turned into this absolute monster, which perhaps has devastated lives. That transformation doesn't just happen within one person's telling. It's because of a lot of different, different details being added and added and added, like that game of telephone, essentially. And that was really interesting to me, too. So it means that not one person in telling a story is the bad guy, is the evil person. It's a lot of really, really tiny, tiny cuts that end up creating a pretty grievous wound if you're not careful. So... I don't know if I really explored this in the book, but it's certainly something I'm interested in. Just the character of a person in terms of realizing that they are making a cut by changing a small detail or by adding their own flavor to a story or by adding their own hint of judgment to something. They are transforming it into something that can be weaponized, into something that can hurt. Um, That was definitely fascinating for me and still is. I think some of that judgment, too, came out of the prescriptiveness of how you are supposed to die and and the the ways, the the rituals um, that you're supposed to adhere to. But they don't always go as planned. Sure. And I think some of that judgment, it's very much in terms of like a familial based society. So it's never just about the one person, about the one individual. If this one person had a death that say this society says was horrible, it's not just this one person who is affected. It reflects on the entire family, the entire dynasty. You know, what did that person do to have children who didn't perform the rights correctly? Or that person didn't have a son, only had daughters, and only sons are supposed to be the ones who can perform the death rituals. Like, what sins did that person commit in this life or in a past life so they weren't blessed with sons? It just creates, I think, this bigger storm cloud where it's not about what a single person did or didn't do, but it reflects on the entire family, and it's almost a way to justify bringing a whole family down a notch as in this person had a horrific death we can't allow any child of ours to marry into that family because then that bad luck is going to pass on to our child you know just this ripple effect of decisions that can happen based on that and I think we saw that as in the trajectory of the book in that Pramesh, he left um, his rural village. He left where he and Sagar were going to farm together and their dads were calculating so that they wouldn't be together anyway, but they could have potentially fought back. But I think the fact that he left and didn't know exactly what happened to his cousin and that he felt responsible in some ways because he was the one that did get out and that he was going to marry someone there that that he because he ended up marrying the daughter of the manager of the hotel where he was working her name was Shoba he didn't he couldn't follow through on a marriage that was promised to the bride's family and so his cousin married this woman instead those were really when I think about it because I didn't think about it when I was actually writing it but those decisions that Pramesh made strike me as very very western when I look at it now the decision to leave your family and in an Indian sense in this unnamed time period In a rural setting, your family is not just your spouse and your children. Your family is your parents, your aunts and uncles, your cousins, your grandparents. You know, everybody is your family unit. And for him to leave and to turn his back and to start his own life in the city 
that is, you know, a classic storyline for a Western country, I think, or, you know, a Western school of thought. It's not so much for an Eastern school of thought. It's he's expected to come back. He's expected to take care of that family. So him abandoning everybody, because that's, I think, what it amounts to in in many ways. And that's certainly how his his father and uncle seen it, see it is I don't want to say it's out of character for him because I don't think it's out of character and the events that happened that transpired to precipitate him leaving aren't really within his control. But that decision has always been interesting to me. And I wonder if it's kind of a product of the fact that I grew up within this like Western upbringing while also having all of this other stuff in the background in my head that the dichotomy is, is, is interesting to look at now in hindsight. Well, I think because of what we're talking about and the decisions that he made, I wrote down in my notes that I sort of left the book at the end thinking that the central question for me was what are we allowed to build in our own lives and what can we let go of. And I think that question of what are we allowed to build in our own lives as you're talking about the Western way, like I don't think we really think about what are we allowed to do in Western culture. But as you're talking about how deeply embedded people are in their families and their histories, what you are allowed to build in your lives does matter because of those family ties. And maybe also because of what we were talking about earlier of the consequences of certain actions. And I think that goes back to a central principle of dharma, which is duty, which I don't think I ever actually say the word dharma in the book, but duty definitely plays a role. You know, what is Pramesh's duty as a son, as a cousin or a brother, as a husband, as a father, as the manager of this place? What are all those separate things that he is expected to do or should be doing? And what happens when those things compete with each other? He has his duty as the manager of this death hostel, which he takes very, very seriously, I think. But in order to perhaps perform his duty as a son, he, that would directly clash with what he's doing within the hostel. Um, perhaps the same might be true for what is his duty as being a father and a, and a husband. Does that clash with his duty to whatever he's obligated to, you know, towards with, with Sagar, with his cousin? That's also, I think, a question that I grapple with in real life as well as in my writing, because it is a real thing. If you're told within this, this school of thought that, well, you just follow your duty and everything will be fine. But it's not as black and white as that if you have several things kind of conflicting and pulling at each other. And then, of course, there's the central question of, well, what is your duty to self? You are performing all of these different things that you are supposed to be doing. But what obligations do you have to yourself? And I think when he makes the decision to leave, he actually is listening to that call of self. He has to be nudged. He has to be goaded along by Sagar. He doesn't come to it on his own. But there is a part of him that is genuinely really excited to leave and to see this this new thing. And I think when the new thing being the city, and I think when he also decides to stay, he's also listening to the call of self. And then later on, as he builds his position within the city, within the hostel, with this relationship with the then hostel manager, who turns out to be his future wife's father, he ends up tying himself to a lot of other different roles that then kind of engender their own duty he has to act upon. That question of how multifaceted duty can be within a person's life and how you deal with conflicting strands pulling at you is something I think I'm always going to be struggling with, not only in my own life, but also just something I'm trying to figure out within my writing. Is there any solution to that? Or 
are we always going to be pulled in several different directions and really not able to satisfy in any single one of them? I was interested in his relationship with his wife because at first, when they're first married, it's clear that he holds the power. It's just sort of the society that they're in and he's the one that calls the shots. But later, when he's really grappling underneath, subtly, she's the one that kind of saves him. She's the one that reconnects him to his family back in in the country. And she's the one who really pushes towards some resolution where I don't think he would have found it. So I just wanted to ask you about the role of, of women in your book and, and what you were thinking about when you were writing her character. I knew when I was going to be writing in this this nameless time that I never specifically identified, that the society was going to have these really strict rules. I didn't always like it when I would have a, a female character like Shoba or her neighbor, Mrs. Mystery, or, or, or any of the other female characters. I, I wasn't really happy as myself, the author, when they would have to react in a way that I didn't think I would react in. But you, yet you have to be true to whatever those boundaries are um, that box that they are kind of encroached in. But what I found unexpected, but really, really interesting is the ingenuity that they can display when they're within that box. As in, okay, you've told me that I can only play within these lines and I can't cross that boundary, but I can still do things. Like I can find a way to make this happen. I might not be able to speak out loud in a crowd of men and have my voice be heard, but I can find another way to do it. I can be really stealthy and use powers of observation and just emotional acuity and get what I need done. That's really, really fun to play with on a lot of different levels because it means that you have your women acting in ways that definitely speak, I think, within their character. You have some that lash out and become kind of vicious gossips towards their own sex. So people like um, Mrs. Gupta, who really has a thing out for Shoba and doesn't like her because of whatever back history. The way that she speaks to Shoba is not a way that she would ever speak in a room full of men but she has that power when she's within a different group. She's exercising that power in the way that she can. And then you have somebody like Mrs. Mystery, who is the next door neighbor, kind of this maternal figure to Shoba, who I think is very wise, very perceptive, but has chosen to take kind of this softer route in order to kind of walk her way through life. And Shoba, who doesn't have any older females in her family to guide her, who, you know, has her neighbor but doesn't really have anybody else, the loneliness that she feels at times was something I felt really emotionally attached to. There's a scene where she goes back with Pramesh, they're first married, and they go back to Pramesh's village with the expectation that she's finally going to meet his father and his uncle and Sagar. And she knows Sagar is a really important person in her husband's life. So she's really nervous and really anticipating this meeting. And it doesn't go as she's planned. And her husband also doesn't really clue her in on what's going to happen or what is happening or what has happened. She's really left alone in the dark And I think that's a moment where you really kind of feel that box close in around her. And it's definitely a moment where I felt like I understood her the most fully because she was perhaps at a depth of despair in that moment. She felt truly alone. She didn't have anybody to talk to. And she was so boxed in with what she could and couldn't say as a brand new wife who was still just getting to know her husband. I felt a lot of empathy for her, and it felt like she was a lot easier to write after that, after I discovered that moment as well. You know, we were talking earlier about 
um, gossip and ritual and judgment, but another element of the book is, is superstition and, and real beliefs of following certain rules in order for certain things to happen or to not happen. Do you want to talk about that? I am an intensely superstitious person and it's something that definitely plays a role in my own daily life. But it's funny because I'm also a very logical person. But the way, so when we talk about superstition, so some of the things I do is like, I always have several evil eyes hanging in my house to kind of mitigate bad energy or stop bad energy from from entering. Um, On the Hindu lunar calendar, there are auspicious days and inauspicious days. So if I have something really important, like a job interview or this interview or the day that the book is coming out, um, I try really hard to find a lucky day for something to be happening and not have it happen on an inauspicious days. And then I also ascribe to your run-of-the-mill superstitions like not opening an umbrella indoors or um, one superstition that's within my family. I don't even know if this is something that other families follow, but you can't hand salt to another person hand to hand. You have to like put it down on the table close to the person and then take your hand away. And then the other person has to grab it because if you don't, if you do it hand to hand, apparently you're going to quarrel with that person for the rest of your life. So I don't know, maybe you do want to hand salt to somebody hand to hand if it's somebody that you don't have a good relationship with. The logical part of me knows that a lot of this is just on one level, very simplistic. It's nonsense, right? Like you can't, you can't really think that you're just going to create bad vibes with somebody from passing salt to them or that you're going to have a really crappy day because you opened an umbrella indoors. But the other part of me also says, you know what? Following all of these things is really harmless. It doesn't hurt anybody and it doesn't cause me to expend more than a normal amount of mental energy to do them. So why not? Like if it could increase my odds in any single way, why not do this thing? And if something good comes out of it, fine. And if nothing comes out of it, fine. But it didn't hurt anything. I think with the book, the extremes that can happen with it were a lot of fun to play with, especially when you have a character like Shoba who isn't, I think when the book opens, she's not particularly superstitious, but she starts having doubts. And I think it comes from this idea of if you have some sort of tool or some sort of rule you can follow, and this also goes back to ritual, you know, a question that you had earlier in terms of um, something that you follow in order to make a person, a person's soul pass in the way that it's supposed to. If you're given this set of rules and you're told it could probably increase your odds, well, then why wouldn't you do them? And on the flip side, I can absolutely see a seed of doubt being planted if, say, you decided to flout those rules and to not do those things, and then something didn't go the way that you wanted to, it's really, really easy to kind of slip into that mental groove of thinking, oh gosh, if I had just done that one stupid little thing, it didn't mean anything to me, but what if it made a difference? I don't know the answer to that about whether all of this is just hogwash or whether it means something, but it's definitely something I structure my life around for better or for worse. And I acknowledge the absurdity on one level, but it's also something I take intensely seriously. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? I absolutely can. I have, um, I mentioned earlier, Midnight's Children by Salman Rushdie. And I have a really short section that I'm going to read. It involves a character who is being chased by a mob. So I'm going to read it mid-mob scene. And now the insanity of the cloud like a pointing finger and the whole disjointed unreality of the time seizes the Mulhala and the screams are echoing from every window and the schoolboys have begun to chant, 
rapist, rapist, ray, ray, rapist, without really knowing what they're saying. The children have edged away from Lafafadas, and he's moved to dragging his box on wheels, trying to get away. But now he is surrounded by voices filled with blood, and the street loafers are moving towards him. Men are getting off bicycles. A pot flies through the air and shatters on a wall beside him. He has his back against a doorway as a fellow with a quiff of oily hair grins sweetly at him and says, So, mister, is it you, Mr. Hindu, who defiles our daughters, Mr. Adolator, who sleeps with his sister? And Lafafa Das, no, for the love of smiling like a fool. And then the door behind him opens and he falls backwards, landing in a dark, cool corridor beside my mother, Amina Sinai. Tell me more about why you chose that. When I started writing The City of Good Death, I was also about to start the final year of my MFA program, and I had received a fully funded fellowship for that year. So I didn't have anything to do but work on and concentrate on my book. And the preceding summer, I had spent really heavily immersed in research, in dreaming, and thinking about what I wanted this book to be. And then the fall semester rolled around and I knew I had to start and I couldn't. Every time I started, everything just sounded stupid. It just was a hot mess. I couldn't, nothing was clicking. Nothing felt like it was being what it needed to be. And for whatever reason, I picked up Midnight's Children. It had been sitting on my shelf for, for years at that point. But whenever I would start reading it, it just didn't feel like the right time to read it. And for whatever reason, this time it did feel like the right time to read it. And reading this book was just an absolute shot of adrenaline, just foot to the accelerator. And the reason for that is I think you can feel Salman Rushdie is just having so much fun as he's writing just his, his exuberance, this unmitigated glee that just saturates the pages. And you just can't help feeling that as a reader. And it was a fantastic reminder to me because as I was sitting there at my computer in absolute misery, trying to wrestle with this ginormous thing that was sitting in my brain and I didn't know how to get it out, I had forgotten about that element of fun and joy and excitement that needed to be there. I was just so stressed out about it and filled about anxiety that I had received a gift of a, a funded year that I forgot the most pivotal point of it all. So after I finished reading this book, a couple weeks later, I was sitting in my public library and with my laptop once again, giving it a go. And I thought to myself, you know, why don't you just write something? It doesn't have to do anything with the book, but why don't you just write whatever comes into your head and just have fun with it? Let's just see what it is. And that thing that I wrote ended up being the opening scene of the novel, which is still there in the final version. It's that scene of the two boatmen on the water, having a drink in the fog, trying to hide from their wives and they come upon this other boat from which a dead body is hanging. And that lesson of fun is something that I tried to remind myself frequently whenever I'm writing, that if anything feels really painful or just all out miserable to the point where I actually dread opening up the laptop and working on something. I dread seeing what I've already written there because it hurts so much. That's a really good sign that I need to try something else because it's just not happening there. And to instead follow this route that does feel joyful and that does feel fun. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. So I'm going to read the first page of part two of my book, The City of Good Death. And this is also chapter eight. Ten days of silence. Ten days of holding his tongue in Shoba and Rani's presence, of giving a wide berth to Mohan and Narendra and the other priests just as they did to him, of keeping his eyes down and walking through the clusters of guests who still sought him out. Ten days of making his own food on a makeshift hearth he constructed in the side alley between the bhavan and the mystery house, of eating just a single meal each day, apart from everyone else, each time facing south with his eyes trained in the direction of the land of the dead. 
Ten days of waking each morning to walk alone to the river, of bathing but avoiding the razor and the nail clippers, of making an offering to Sagar of a single rice ball that he molded with his hands, ten days of going without shoes or sandals and of sleeping on the ground just outside the kitchen, ten days of waiting, of listening as Narendra recited from the Gurudbran, describing the horrors of the Vaitharani River, whose crossing all souls endured before they transformed from earthbound spirit to nothing, to no one, a blessed merging with the great God, ten days of repeating the holy name to himself until his mouth was dry and his throat parched, all while banishing Sagar's name from his lips, his heart, his mind. Tell me why you chose that. I ended up having to rewrite almost the entire part two of this book during the final revisions. And it was something that needed to happen. Um, That part of the book had always plagued me. It had really slow pacing. It had a lot of issues to it. And much of that was because of choices that I had made early on with writing. And working with Nathan was probably the first moment where I was given an idea of how to deal with it. But unfortunately for me, that necessitated rewriting the entire thing. So I had a directive. I had a lot of different tasks I had to do within the section. But the difficult part was actually getting into it. And even though the section I read is perhaps kind of simple and not the most glamorous, for me, it marks a real success point because the moment I figured out how to open that part two was the moment that I finally realized, wait, I can do this. I just need to put one foot in front of the other, but I just needed that initial foothold into it. And the section that I read turned out to be that. Where do you write? I have a desk in my bedroom that I do most of my writing at in the evenings. I have a day job, and when I used to have an office to commute to before the pandemic, I would also write during my lunch break, even in, um, either in a coffee shop that was inside my building, or if it was nice, nice outside, I would go to a bench or just find a quiet spot somewhere and work. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I'll do a little bit of anything or everything. Um Doing any sort of work with my hands is really helpful. I've been a knitter for 20 years, so I usually have a couple of knitting projects going. Um, I might do some sort of paper craft like origami or baking. I'll take a walk. I'll watch a movie or a Chinese drama. I'll talk to a friend. Anything to just take myself out of myself because usually the problem is I have delved too far internally that I no longer know what direction I'm going in. And so I need to come up for air before I go back in. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? It depends on what the piece is. So it could be my writing group, which is made up of folks, friends that I've made from my MFA program. It could be my mom. It could be a really good friend who's not a writer, but who is a voracious reader and is really in tune with whatever it is that I'm writing about. But honestly, this might sound a little bit weird. I think the first person I show my work to is myself. And the reason I say that is I try really carefully with my deadlines to create a bit of buffer time for myself so that I will work on multiple drafts and then I'll put them away and give myself a couple of days or even a week if I have it to not look at it all so that when I come back to it, I'm essentially a different person than I was when I finished it. And I can be really, really ruthless in looking at it. And I think I developed this habit because when I was working on the novel, I'm very superstitious. So I didn't tell anybody I was working on anything. Very few people knew what I was doing. And I also didn't show anybody pages of it as I was working on it. Nobody saw it until I had a a full and final draft of it. But what that meant was that if I encountered a problem on my own or I just couldn't figure something out, the person I had to rely on was myself. And I had to figure it out and get to a point of completion by myself. So it's kind of a bit of a habit that I've retained through the years. How have you dealt with rejection? 
I try to remind myself that the only reward I have a right to is just enjoying the process, enjoying actually writing and creating the thing. And anything that may or may not happen afterward is really none of my business. And what is your favorite word? My favorite word right now is a Gujarati word, and it is bakwas. And what that means is essentially it translates to rubbish, bullshit, this kind of scornful, disdainful, like, well, that's bakwas, or, you know, whatever you're talking about is bakwas. Well, thank you so much for spending the time with me. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome, Mitzi. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Priyanka Champaneri, author of The City of Good Death. If you liked today's show, check out my interview with Tashani Doshi, whose book Small Days and Nights focuses on a single woman dealing with a family reckoning in contemporary South India. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of 300 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Anna North, Gabriela Garcia, Marissa Silver, Stephen Pressfield, and Kevin McElvoy. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.